0: against us will stand, the battle belongs to the Lord. Greetings, I'm Will Tompkins, and what follows is our discussion of Chapter 2 in our source text, John Bunyan's timeless book, The Pilgrim's Progress, edited by C.J. Lovick. Let us pray. O Father God, we pray this message will not fall upon deaf ears. That we may be encouraged to strengthen our resolve, to seek out and destroy any sin that remains in our actions and in our hearts. Let us be forever mindful of your wrath. Indeed, Father, let us fear it, and let that fear drive sin from our lives. And let us also be ever mindful of your love and your grace, Father, so that we may be encouraged and strengthened by it, and thus Be prepared for the battles that lie just ahead. Now, when we last saw Christian, our pilgrim, he was reaching out for the hand of help at the edge of the Slough of Despond, also known as the Swamp of Despond, and by way of that hand was able to extricate himself from the pit, a place of sinking hopelessness, a despair beyond measure where one begins to doubt the Lord's mercy and forgiveness. King David was there in that place. Psalm forty, one through 2 I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. This week, Christian meets Mr. Worldly Wise Man from the town of Carnal Policy. He learns about Mr. Legality and his son's civility from the town of Morality. And he nearly perishes on Mount Sinai, but is saved by another visit from Evangelist. He gets to the small or narrow wicket gate where he meets Goodwill. He visits the house of the Interpreter where he learns many spiritual truths. Quote, things rare and profitable, things pleasant and dreadful, things to give him stability and wisdom to deal with his tasks at hand, and he begins his walk to the cross. Now the key spiritual lessons to be learned from this chapter are Be wary of all worldly wise men. Treasure the significance of the gate. And three, pay close attention to what is taught at the house of the interpreter. And remember, one thing you can be sure of, once you go through the narrow gate, the ground is good. Now, as our pilgrim was walking across the meadow on his way to the narrow gate, he meets Mr. Worldly Wise Man from the town of Carnal Policy. Now, Mr. Worldly Wiseman asks Christian, where he's going, and who sent him. A gentleman named Evangelist, he answered. Mr. Worldly Wise Man tells Christian that he's been deceived by Evangelist, that the way he advised is a hard road, full of difficulties and a pointless pursuit, because there's a far easier way to get to the same destination he tells christian that to lose his burden all he needs to do is meet mr legality or his son civility in the village of morality christian is woefully deceived by this self-seeking self-satisfied self-righteous mr worldly wise man note however that worldly wise man does not say that evangelus hadn't pointed the way to salvation the gate and the narrow way, nor that wicked men aren't in danger of future misery. Rather, he tells Christian that so much concern over sin and lack of obedience keeps men from enjoying their worldly pursuits. Worldly wise man's rationalizing was good enough to cause our poor pilgrim to veer off the righteous path and head to the one that leads to destruction. Worldly wise man lives for worldly prosperity and praise and position, all of which are the exact opposites to those things proclaimed by our Lord. He makes his religion fit into his agenda. He is against any kind of religion that would interfere with a man's getting ahead in this world, or trouble his mind over sin, or ruin his pleasure in satisfying his fleshly appetites. He is for using religion for his own secular advantage. He is a member of the right church, the one which all the well-educated and wealthy, prosperity-minded, prominent people in the community are members. The kind of church where what you wear is more important than what's in your heart. It doesn't matter to worldly wise men what kind of theology is taught at the Church. It only matters to him that the right kind of people attend, and that he is seen with them. The belief system Mr. Worldly Wise Man represents is that of the humanist, where human wisdom, achievement, and possessions are the apex and center of life. This philosophy was the centerpiece of Ayn Rand's famous and best-selling book, Atlas Shrugged. I've read Atlas Shrugged, and I live the lifestyle promulgated therein. And I can tell you without hesitation that in the end, it produces nothing but despair. A disquieting emptiness where nothing you do or acquire is enough. There is no joy or satisfaction. There is only emptiness. Worldly wise man tells Christian that man's way to righteousness and salvation that is, how to get rid of his burden, is by doing good works and living a moral life, being a good guy, without any of the demands of declaring Jesus Christ Lord and Savior and being obedient to his word. However, because people have such a bent towards sin, they must make and observe a standard of morals at a level that they are able to attain, thus lowering God's perfect standard. Of righteousness. He deceives Christian into thinking that this is an easier way to salvation. Putting it bluntly, Mr. Worldly Wise Man is a gospel cheat. Listen, loved ones, your righteousness, my righteousness, the only righteousness, is that which is imputed by Christ Jesus alone. Christ is our righteousness, 2 Corinthians 5, in that He has paid the penalty for our sin. There is no other way to salvation, no, not one. John fourteen, six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Second Corinthians twelve, eight through ten. Concerning this thing I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And about the law we know this, Therefore by the deeds of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin, Romans 3.20. So in the end, this worldly wise man is the classic prosperity guy, bent on deceiving and cheating others, leading them away from the only true source of salvation. And so, having been deceived, Christian heads toward morality and soon finds himself on the rim of Mount Sinai, which represents the law. The weight of his burden here, represented by the overhanging mountain, is about to crush him. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews 10.38 Pilgrim is now terrified and realizes that he was indeed deceived. And who appears but evangelist? He reprimands Christian for his lack of faith, his veering off the path, his denial of God's promises. He further rebukes him for thinking the way to extricate himself from the law, to rid himself of his burden, was to go back to the law and try to do better. That's the gospel of the village of morality and Mount Sinai. You can do it. Work harder. Just pull yourself up, man. And we believe it because we are hardwired to believe in self-justification. Listen. I justified my previous life by endless spending and what I could purchase, by what I had accumulated, by the influence I could wield. That's how I defined myself. And then, after many years, a depression set upon me that drowned my life in blackness. So black, in fact, that I felt as if I were going to die. Almost daily. My wife, a nurse practitioner would graciously take my vitals and find nothing. Finally, I went to see my doctor, whom I had known for many years, and he found something. But it wasn't a bodily ailment. He rolled his stool closer to me and said, Will, I'm going to write you a prescription. And as he handed it to me, I took it with a bit of trepidation, as I imagined it was for antidepressants. But as I read it, I wept uncontrollably until a light began to shine in the distance. It was exactly the right prescription, ultimately becoming a turning point, a turning point that would lead to the transformation of my life. For he had written, Renew thy faith. O Father God, thank you for your messengers. So vital are they to our spiritual journey. They are indeed part of your promises, Father God. Amen. Proverbs thirteen seventeen: A trustworthy envoy brings healing. Loved ones, have you had brothers or sisters come alongside of you during times of spiritual weakness? And do you know that that is also our obligation? To be there for them. Isaiah six eight. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Remember James 5.19.20 Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So when our brothers or sisters are in need, let us be the ones who answer, Lord, Lord, here I am, send me. Now back on the ledge we find Christian on his knees, shaking and terrified as Evangelist calls out to the Lord and Christian hears the roar, See that you refuse not him who speaks. Hebrews 12.25 Thus, Christian is warned, if you stray, if you look for salvation anywhere other than this narrow path through the narrow gate and then to a hill called Calvary, then you are doomed. Evangelist tells Christian there were three things about worldly wise men that he must abhor. One, his convincing him to turn out of the way. Two, his effort to make the cross repulsive to him, and three, sending him on a way that leads to death. Mr. Worldly Wiseman's comments and directions were an attempt to render the cross odious to thee, he tells Christian. But to think that our salvation lies somewhere other than the cross is a pathway to death. Then the message here is clear, isn't it? There is no forgiveness without Jesus. There is no salvation without Jesus. Indeed, there is nothing without Jesus. Amen. Having rebuked and warned our pilgrim, Evangelist now brings words of encouragement and comfort and gets Christian back on the narrow path. Christian finally arrives at the gate and begins to knock. And worried because it's not being answered, he knocks again. Knocking more than once or twice at the gate indicates Christians' earnest and persistent praying and pleading with Christ in faith for mercy and forgiveness. We are, loved ones, to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking. We are to rely on His promises. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Matthew 7, 7. Now the following reading is from an older edition of the text, and I quote, At last there came a grave person to the gate, named Goodwill, who asked who was there, and whence he came, and what he would have. Christian answered, Here is a poor burdened sinner. I come from the city of destruction, but I am going to Mount Zion, that I may be delivered from the wrath that is to come. I would therefore, sir, since I am informed by this gate is the way thither, know if you are willing to let me in. Goodwill responded, I am willing with all my heart, said he, and with that he opened the gate. Now Goodwill, the gatekeeper, is a grave man, for he continually looks at the city of destruction, the perishing men and the weary pilgrims, he questions our pilgrim about his journey, where he began, who directed him, and what troubles he may have had. We are instructed in the condition of a soul seeking Christ by the answers given in response to the gatekeeper's questions. Christian realizes his sinful condition, that the world and its ways will perish, that God is holy and just, and that there is a judgment coming at which each person will stand and at which the wicked will be punished. The arrows shot from Beelzebub's castle are those of Satan, which he lets fly with excellent aim to hit their target, which is the heart of the man. These are arrows with which he would keep us from Christ. It is sad to think of how many people have fallen victim to these arrows. They come in the form of thoughts such as, There's plenty of time before I die. I'll come to Christ later, and I'm too bad of a person to come to Christ. I must first reform and clean up my act. Each Christian must praise the arm of Christ's omnipotent grace for pulling him forcefully through the gate before one of those arrows found its mark. Now, Goodwill leaves him with some instructions. Once inside the gate, he discovers that his journey has only just begun, and for his burden, well, he must bear it a while longer. He must bear it until he arrives at the place of deliverance, the cross, as Christ alone can save and Christ alone has the power of deliverance. He's instructed by goodwill that the way forward is both narrow and difficult, that it was forged by the prophets, the patriarchs, Christ and his apostles, that it is straight, as straight can be, that there are many bypasses that cross it or go around it, many forks in the road, but it is the way that we and he must travel. So Christian departs from goodwill to the house of the interpreter, where he will learn many spiritual lessons, excellent things, lessons to sustain him along the way. So, who is the interpreter? Some commentators say that the interpreter represents the Holy Spirit in his teaching and enlightening capacity as we pray and as we read and hear and meditate on Scripture, God's living and holy word. Others, however, say that he is a minister of the gospel and that the lessons represent various theological truths conveyed in his sermons. He proceeds to show our pilgrim Seven Lessons Lesson 1. A Portrait of a Minister This is an image of the type of man to whom Christians should look to for guidance. He represents, perhaps, Bunyan's own pastor, John Gifford. Lesson 2. A Dusty Parlor For the second lesson, the interpreter leads Christian by the hand to a large parlor that is full of dust, dust that is endlessly swept but never cleaned. The parlor represents the heart of a man that has never been sanctified by the grace of the gospel. And the dust is original sin and corruptions that have defiled man and made him unfit for the presence of God. And how is it ever cleaned? By the grace of God, which is represented in this image by the maiden sprinkling the dust with water. Lesson three. Passion and Patience This room is inhabited by two small children who are completely opposite each other in character. Passion represents the carnal men of this world who must have everything now. Patience represents those who quietly wait for the full satisfaction that is to come as they fix their attention on eternal realities. I remember once sitting in a car with Pastor Alistair Begg on the radio from Cleveland, Ohio, when he asked, What would happen if every decision you made today was based on the eternal view? Indeed, loved ones, what would happen if all the decisions we made today were based on the eternal view? Think about that. Lesson four a fire burning against the wall. The interpreter next takes Christian by the hand and leads him into a place where a fire is burning against a wall. The image shows Satan on one side of the wall throwing water on the fire, while on the other side, Jesus is pouring oil on it. By this, he learns that Satan continually attempts to put out this flame, which is the work of grace, by his wicked devices. However, Christ will maintain and carry on the sanctifying work of the cross that he has begun in the soul of the believer. Here's a side note about the oil from John Gill's Bible commentary. Quote, As the olive tree produces an oil used both for light and food, so they bring the gospel with them, which is the means of spiritual light, and it contains in it refreshing and delightful food. Now lesson number five a stately place. The interpreter leads Christian to a pleasant place where there was a stately palace representing a glimpse of heaven. However, men in armor guard the palace and are resolved to harm all who try to enter. It is the word that tells us that we must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation, Acts 14.22, and that none are able to fight the battle against the enemy within, which is the flesh or the enemies without, which are the world and Satan, unless they have been suited with the full armor of God. Ephesians 6.17. Amen. Lesson 6. A man in an iron cage. Now this man has fallen prey to his own lusts, and now, believing he has lost all, felt he could not escape. The iron cage represents the despair of one who has sinned to the point of losing all hope of God's forgiveness and salvation. And finally, Lesson 7, A Frightening Dream. And for this explanation, I'll read from Sarah Bradley's commentary. Quote, the interpreter next bids Christian Terry to see one more thing, a man rising out of bed who shook and trembled at the dream he had had. And what terrified the dreamer was that the day of judgment had come and he was not ready for it. The sinful world we live in, along with the devil, seeks to hide the fact that there is a day of judgment coming and a great many consciences are easily lulled to sleep by this deception. Only as people are exposed to the truth contained in the Bible are they awakened from this deadly soul sleep. Oh, that we could cause more people to shake and tremble before it is too late and the judgment day is upon us. Christian learns from this visit with the interpreter that where there is gospel hope, there will be a godly fear. Both are necessary and both are graces of the Holy Spirit. And as Christian was departing, the interpreter said to him, May the Comforter be with you always, to guide you in the way that leads to the city. For our next session, read and be ready to discuss chapter 3 in the source text, a chapter called, A Burden Lifted and a Journey Begun." Let us pray. O Father God, we pray this message has not fallen upon deaf ears, that we may be encouraged to strengthen our resolve, to seek out and destroy any sin that remains in our actions, and in our hearts. Let us be ever mindful of your wrath. Indeed, Father, let us fear it, and let that fear drive sin from our lives. And let us also be ever mindful of your love and grace, Father, so that we may be encouraged and strengthened by it, and thus be prepared for the battles that lie just ahead. Amen. Now, until next time, loved ones, may the Comforter be with you always to guide you in the way that leads to the city.